1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sineya I studied neuroscience and then bioengineering, graduating with a PhD from ETH3 in Switzerland. Currently, I'm working in the industry with a focus in, in diagnostics. Today, I have with me Paul Offit with his new book, You Bet Your Life, From Blood Transfusions to Mass Vaccination, The Long and Risky History of Medical Innovation. Paul Offit, MD, is the Chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases and the Director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. A Professor of Vaccinology and Pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, the author of nine books, and the co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine, he lives in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So, thank you, Paul, for joining us today.
0: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: (laughs) So... um, I really, uh, really enjoyed actually reading your book. But before we start, maybe you can tell us a bit about your impressive career, just more than I I was just sharing now.
0: Sure. Um, Well, I um, went to medical school in Baltimore, and then I, Baltimore, Maryland, and then I um, did a pediatric residency at Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh, and then I uh, went to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia to do a pediatric infectious disease fellowship and pretty much stayed there. Um, and then worked with a group headed by Stanley Plotkin and Fred Clark to, to try and develop uh, a rotavirus vaccine. So rotaviruses are a cause of fever and vomiting and diarrhea in young babies. In the United States, that virus would cause about 75,000 children to be hospitalized with dehydration or water loss every year. It would cause about 60,000 children to die every year. But rotaviruses are actually the biggest killer of infants and young children in the world, killing about 2,000 children a day in the world. So so um, that's why we developed an interest in making that vaccine. That became a vaccine in, in February of 2006. It was recommended uh, universally for all children in the United States then. And then in 2013, the World Health Organization recommended that for use of children in the world. I mean, my interests have been in, in writing, writing a, in addition to doing research, writing about um, sort of science and medicine Um, Most recently, I'm on the FDA's Food and Drug Administration's Vaccine Advisory Committee, so we've been considering, obviously, all of these vaccines and vaccines for younger children, and so I've been pretty busy
1: <laughs> that i can see and i mean with all these different roles uh being a doctor a scientist an inventor and also a public service advising i think it, this gives you a very uh, spe- special position also to um to judge such health problems and uh, inventions that that you're tackling in your book um so uh what I really enjoyed is that in the book you had these various players um, basically in, um, in the inventions of, of new medical technologies or, or diagnostic technologies. You have the patients, you have the doctors. So typically people think that, okay, somebody just invents something and then that's it. But there are so many other players in the, in the game. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Sure. I think, you know, you have this notion um, that there's this eureka moment, you know, where sort of everything comes together. Right. I mean, I think it was Archimedes. Right. He, He immerses himself in bath and he comes up with Archimedes principle right? Which is that the, if you float, you displace your, your volume. If you sink, you display, dis, if you float, you displace your weight. If you sink, you displace your volume of water. Um, and so he realizes that He's, he screams Eureka. If he runs down the street screaming Eureka, right? It doesn't work that way. Um, normally what happens is you sort of take two steps forward, one step back, sometimes one step forward, two steps back. I mean, nature gives its, its secrets up gradually, grudgingly and often with a human price i think one of the points of this book and and that's why the title you bet your life is that that there's invariably a human price to pay for medical knowledge. We learn as we go. And you you always think that we're, we're so sophisticated now, we're so good at, at, at all the um, the, the uh, technology that's been advanced over the last 10 years, 20 years, that we don't have to pay that price anymore. But that's never true. You always pay a price, even for the current vaccines, the current vaccines to prevent Uh, COVID, you know, the mRNA vaccines were found to be a rare cause of myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart muscle. And the, the, uh, the vectored virus vaccines like the AstraZeneca vaccine were found to be a rare cause of blood clots, including severe blood clots, including blood clots in the brain, including fatal blood clots. It's rare, but it's real and it's caused by the the vaccine. And And these were complete surprises. No one would have predicted that. Nonetheless, it happened. So I think, um, we learn as we go, and so the, the the things that I go through in the books, whether it's a- antibiotics or vaccines or biologicals or anesthesia or, or X-rays um or gene therapy um there's always a price to pay for knowledge and we never accept that we we always believe you're supposed to know everything that you need to know right now but i think if you ask people now if you said do you think that a hundred years from now we're going to know more about medicine and more about science than we know now i think everybody would say yes but when it comes to their problem their disease people want to believe you know everything right now when that's invariably not the case
1: so you mean even with now, for example, you mentioned a lot, so that's, uh, that's really nice that um, there are also regulators, which is a field basically developed further and further to prevent uh, tragedies, as, as you call it, uh, even basically in 100 years and so on, because of the unknowns of a particular disease or a new pathogen in the case we have with COVID-19, there will always be things that we don't know and we have to take calculated risks.
0: That's right. And you can put all the regulation you want into that, either through the Food and Drug Administration here in the United States, through the federal government. You can regulate things, but you still pay a price. I mean, one of the stories I tell in the book is is the story of a boy named Jesse Gelsinger. So, so this is a boy who um, lacked a particular liver enzyme that meant that he would have a buildup of ammonia in his bloodstream, ammonia just like the ammonia you use to scrub floors. And that would cause him to, to, uh, to go into a coma and occasionally have to go to to the hospital, so he he um he wanted gene therapy. He wanted a therapy to replace that gene, and so the, the this was at the University of Pennsylvania, which is where I work. The person who who did that work was a, a gene therapy star researcher named Jim Wilson, and he took basically the same vaccine that we the the, the same, same uh, strategy that we used to make the Johnson and Johnson vaccine or the Astrazeneca vaccine, which is you take an adenovirus a common cold virus, and you then uh, genetically alter it so that it can now express the gene that Jesse Gelsinger lacked, this liver enzyme, but it, but the virus can't reproduce itself and cause harm. So it'll provide the gene, but it won't cause harm. And, you know, and Jim Wilson gradually worked himself up to, to do this um this, uh, a particular therapy for Jesse Gelsinger, giving smaller doses, then a little larger doses, then a little larger dose for, for dozens of people before Jesse Gelsinger ever got his dose. Then Jesse Gelsinger got a, a dose of this, this particular um, adenovirus vector that contained the gene that he lacked. It was the same thing a woman had received just a few weeks before him, and he was overwhelmed by it. And he had basically what looked like sepsis, meaning invasive bacterial infection. That's what it looked like. And he died. He was the first gene therapy death. And so this country, the United States, stood back and we said, "Okay, we're going to put in regulations that never allow this to happen again. But it did happen again because the next time what happened is there was a retrovirus gene. So retroviruses are, for example, the kind of virus that causes AIDS, but there are also the human immunodeficiency viruses, a retrovirus, but there are also um, retroviruses that are benign. So French researchers did work where, with uh, with a retrovirus because that directly inserts itself into DNA. And they did that on 10 children who had the, the severe immune deficiencies, four of whom eventually developed leukemia when that gene happened to insert right in front of another gene that would Uh, Increase your risk for leukemia, and so you you and so then we knew that now you can't use that kind of vector. You have to modify it so that it doesn't uh, do that, and and so you learn. So now we have retrovirus vectors that work much better than that. Now we have adenovirus vectors that that uh, were developed by um, Jim Wilson that work much better than that. But you know how did you learn? These people pay a price. These people paid the price. So for me, people like Jesse Gelsinger are, are heroes in the sense that without them. You don't learn, but we don't like to celebrate our failures. So you never really hear, hear his name.
1: That actually is something that I um, remarked as well. In each chapter, you actually name um, one of the uh, basically people who suffered to bring a, p- a particular therapy or a test forward so I that is um, that is a very nice touch and that we actually remember these people's names and similarly that you mentioned about doctors and basically all the other people involved in a humane way so nobody's only a hero or a failure or a victim or a perpetrator so was this uh, something that you did on purpose or can you a little bit tell us about this the human factor involved in all this
0: Yes. I, I mean, I'm at the University of Pennsylvania, which is where Jesse Gelsinger died. And what happened was Jim Wilson took a step back and he said, OK, I'm going to figure out why he died. And, and it took a while. And then he realized that what happened to Jesse Gelsinger when he got that very large dose of this um, basically inactivated virus to contain the gene that Jesse Gelsinger lacked was that Jesse Gelsinger had that, that, that by doing that. That caused Jesse Gelsinger to have a very high level of secretion of a particular protein, immunological protein called interleukin-6. That was the problem what killed Jesse Gelsinger were these high, massive quantities of interleukin-6. Now, at the time, it wouldn't matter have mattered. There was nothing that would have counteracted that that was in the in our uh, pharmacy or in our armamentarium to counteract that. But then, then what happened a few years later is there was a little girl, a little five-year-old girl named Emily Whitehead who had leukemia. So she went through rounds of chemotherapy, and that didn't defeat her leukemia. Then she went through a second round of chemotherapy, and that didn't defeat her leukemia. So she was going to die. And so so then she uh hooked up with another University of Pennsylvania researcher named Carl June who developed something called CAR T therapy. So what what Carl June did and this is now standard therapy. What Carl June did was he took her her Emily's uh, uh white blood cells specifically T cells and engineered them so that they would attack her leukemia cells. So puts them back into her body. Now you have this therapy where um, these particular T cells can kill Emily Whitehead's leukemic cells. And they did. They did. But then she developed the same symptoms that Jesse Gelsinger had developed. So what happened now was researchers, wait, wait a second. This is just like what happened to Jesse Gelsinger. Let me see if she has high levels of interleukin-6. And she did. Very high levels. Like thousands of fold greater than you would expect. And so now at this point, there was a therapy, a monoclonal antibody called tocilizumab, which was on the formulary. It was there for another reason, but nonetheless it was there. So they gave her this and it saved her life. And so then what happened? Then what happened is she was on, on national television shows. She was on the Today Show. She was on 2020. She was taken to the White House to visit President Obama. And if you look at those, all those events where she's standing, beaming next to President Obama, or she's on the Today Show. If you go to Carl June's laboratory, that's what you see. You see all those pictures because we're very willing. But what you, well, you don't see, is you don't see pictures of Jesse Gelsinger because we, we are willing to celebrate our successes but are uncomfortable recognizing the failures that led to those successes. So that to me was the sort of the emotional heart of the book in many ways, is to realize it's a human endeavor, that humans are flawed, that we learn as we go, and that that, that learning curve is invariable.
1: That really comes across, I have to say, and I personally really appreciated it. Can you tell us a bit about, I mean, COVID-19 pandemic definitely is basically hanging behind all, all of the chapters. I kind of had that feeling. So I'm suspecting that had something to do with it, but a little bit about the motivation for you to write this book.
0: Well, the book, I certainly started writing the book before the COVID pandemic. I know it's hard to believe there ever was a time before the COVID pandemic, but there was actually a couple of years ago. And so I was writing it then. But then, as I was writing it, then the pandemic started to unfold. So I, I, I kind of tried to group chapters to see how, how that sort of related to this. And I think, in part, for me, it was because I was on the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee. So, so I'll, I'll give you a specific example. When, um, in at the end of October, Um, we were asked Mm. to look at data for the 5- to 11-year-old child. In other words, here was a 2,400-child study. 1,600 children got Pfizer's mRNA vaccine. About 800 children got placebo. And then you saw whether or not the vaccine worked. So there were ended up being about 16 cases in the uh, placebo group, three in the vaccine group. So the vaccine was about 91% effective. Well, I got a lot of hate mail um, right before that vote. I got about three, not about, I got 3,100 pieces of hate mail on the two to three days before oh, that wow. vote. And they all said the same thing. Vote no. Vote no. Don't put this vaccine out there because they're going to mandate it for our children and we don't want it. But some of the, I didn't read through most of those, but but some of them were more reasonable. Some of the hate mail was, or at least questioning mail, was 2,400 children. That's all you want to test. Just 2,400. When Pfizer did its trial in adults in the United States and, and elsewhere, that was a 40,000-person trial. So you do 40,000 adults, but only 2,400 children. That's all you want to test. And so, so I wrote back to a couple of people who seemed more reasonable and said, "Okay, you could do 24,000 children. You could do that instead of 2,400. Then instead of having 16 cases in the placebo group, it'd be 160 cases in the placebo group." of children who suffered COVID. Is that what you want? I mean, what price do we want to pay for knowledge? And this was another sort of emotional issue for me in the book, because as you can see on your screen, I'm an older person and uh, I was a child in the 1950s. So I was a first and second grader in the 1950s during the development of the polio vaccine. So I remember that. I mean, when I was five, I was in a polio ward for about six weeks. So I certainly remember that disease. I remember what it looked like to see those children in traction. I remember what it looked like to see children in iron lungs. I remember that disease. Well, and I uh, remember what it was like being in the hospital for that six weeks. Um, and so, so when Jonas Salk made his polio vaccine, um, what he did was he took poliovirus, he grew it up in monkey kidney cells, he purified it, and then he inactivated it with a chemical, formaldehyde, and then he in- injected that into seven hundred children in and around Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and and saw that the immune response was great. Uh, that the vaccine was safe. And he declared it to his wife, Eureka, I've got it. This vaccine works. And that was it. As far as he was concerned, he was done. Let's give it to children. Let's not wait. But the, the March of Dimes, which was a private philanthropic organization, wanted to um, do this as a Uh, big clinical trial. And so what they proceeded to do was the biggest clinical trial of, I think, a medical product in history. 420,000 children were given Jonas Salk's vaccine. 200,000 children were given placebo. And then over a year, you waited to see what happened. When it was over, the person in charge of that trial, a man named Thomas Francis at the University of Michigan, stood up at the podium and said those three famous words, safe, potent, and effective. Those three words were on the headline of every newspaper in this country. Church bells rang out. Synagogues held special prayer meetings. Department stores stopped to hear that announcement. I remember my mother crying when that announcement was made. The Voice of America, you know, put that out there so that that people in Europe could hear exactly what had happened. Well, how did he know it was effective? How did Thomas Francis know that that vaccine was effective? He knew it was effective because 16 children died from polio in that study, all in the placebo group. He knew it was effective because 36 children were paralyzed in that study permanently for the rest of their life, 34 in the placebo group. Those were first and second graders in the 1950s. I was a first and second grader in the 1950s. Those children could have lived long, productive lives, but for the flip of a coin. So realize that when, you, when you're testing these things, when you're learning about these things, there is a price to pay on both sides both when you're learning about how whether it works and both once you release it to millions of people. And that's what happened with, with the polio vaccine. I mean, when the vaccine was licensed and it actually took two and a half hours to license that product, which is not true anymore. Now it takes more like 10 months. But um, when that vaccine was made, five companies stepped forward to make it. One of them made it badly. Cutter Laboratories made that that vaccine badly. And I talk about this in the book. You know, they failed to inactivate the polio vaccine. They failed to inactivate it. They they couldn't scale it up in a safe way. And as a consequence, 120,000 children, primarily in the western and southwestern portions of the United States, were inoculated with live, dangerous polio virus. Um, And as a consequence, 40,000 children in this country Developed something called abortive polio, which is short-lived paralysis. One hundred and sixty-four children were permanently paralyzed by that vaccine, and ten were killed. I think it was probably the worst biological disaster in this country's history, and it really gave birth to vaccine regulation in the United States. So, you know, the um, I think the um, the there's a, a historian named Michael Harris who said it best. He said, uh, "The history of, of drug regulation is built on tombstones." That's true. <laughs>
1: So um, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but you divided the book in these three sections, risk, oversight and serendipity. So can you tell us a bit about how you came up with these groupings and what they mean for these medical innovations?
0: I'm sorry, so oh, the way I grouped it in the in the uh, thing, yeah. so um yeah, so so I, I did regulation was sort of one. What are those things that led to regulation? And then another was sort of serendipity, meaning those um, aspects of uh, of a knowledge where it was just a surprise, where it was sort of a mistake that led to, to something good. And, and the Jesse Gelsinger story was an example of that. It was, we learned something um, by that mistake that led us to develop a therapy, the tocilizumab, you know, the monoclonal against interleukin-6, that now is almost standard therapy. For people that get that so-called CAR T therapy, that anti-cancer therapy that Carl June um, developed, and there's other examples of that. So that, that's sort of, it's at some sense an arbitrary grouping, but you know, we, we, there there are sort of the lumpers and the splitters. I'm a lumper.
1: So coming back to the oversight, you've mentioned already that um, uh, some of these uh, tragedies basically caused um, more stringent regulations. It's, it's really critical and it's something that became a question during the COVID-19 um, vaccine development. How do you see then the parallels in this case with the cases you have in the book with regards to where we are you know, compared to earlier times where you didn't have these regulations,
0: right? I, I definitely saw parallels, actually, to the development of the COVID vaccines in this country, and and the, and actually the polio vaccine, because because what happened with the polio vaccine was that the March of Dimes paid for it. The March of Dimes paid for the research, um, and then when 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 there then was a vaccine, they actually paid for the clinical trial, and they then they paid to mass produce, uh, mass distribute, and mass administer the vaccine, That we, we the, the um, process that was used in this country to speed up the COVID vaccine development was called Operation Warp Speed, which is to say the federal government gave $10 billion to speed up that process. So from the time that we first isolated the virus back in January of 2020 to the time that we had access to two huge clinical trials of a novel vaccine... The messenger RNA vaccine. Um, you know, we 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 uh, we did that because it's the fastest vaccine ever made. Because we 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 paid for it, and and really, that's what um, the cutter, the the uh, sorry, the polio vaccine was like Operation Warp Speed One. And so it's very much like what happened with this vaccine. But you worry when things are done quickly. You worry when things are not um, um, approved through a formal licensure process. It was approved through emergency use authorization, which is a much looser um, way of approving for a drug. So you always worried that there was going to be uh, like a, 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 um, a scale-up problem, you know, that there, 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 there's a difference between giving hundreds of doses and, and hundreds of millions of doses, and that there would be a problem there. And then you worried about what was going to happen Happen next. I, th- I think one of the things that, that upset me actually was the CEOs of the pharmaceutical companies, Johnson Johnson, uh, um, Astra, uh, the AstraZeneca as well, and then um, uh, Pfizer, Moderna. When they were doing phase one trials, they were twenty five people, thirty people. They would say, you know, we can make millions of doses. <laughs> I mean, you know. Don't say that, you know, be humble, because that level of hubris means you don't understand the fact that you are about to learn things about this vaccine that you don't know now, that you wish you knew now, like myocarditis with the mRNA vaccines or this clotting problem with the vectored virus vaccines. Those were surprises. And I just think, you know, we if, if history teaches us nothing else in terms of uh, medical innovations, if nothing else, it should be humility. And I I think I saw a a tremendous lack of humility by those companies. Fortunately, these vaccines are remarkably safe and remarkably effective, but you sort of hold your breath. You keep waiting for the other shoe to drop.
1: Um, I also um, noted down a a quote from the book with regards to FDA, where where actually it was described by American Medical Association as inefficiently armed as a hunter pursuing a tiger with a fly (laughs) swatter. So also just just wondering that how how this improved in the meantime. I know it's true we cannot avoid certain risks but at least there's some uh e- evolution I think in learning in the process.
0: Yeah, I, I think that that statement was re- re- in regard to another tragedy that happened um which was the so-called uh elixir sulfanilamide disaster. So so was the really the first broad-spectrum antibiotic. It was a product of the German dye industry in the mid-1930s. It was the first antibiotic we had to treat pneumonia, the first antibiotic we had to treat bacterial meningitis, bloodstream infections, uh, um, septic arthritis, um, j- bone infections, joint infections. It was, it was called the magic bullet. It was a miracle drug. And, um, in, and it was a, there was a Nobel Prize awarded to one of the people who worked in the German dye industry, um gerhard Dermack to you know for that vaccine i'm sorry for that uh antibiotic and so so a number of companies stepped forward to make it in the united states merck and others but they mostly made it as a powder or a tablet there was another company named the Se massingill company of bristol tennessee that wanted to make a preparation for children and that, that because children are less likely to take a powder, less likely to take a tablet, they had an oral preparation, a liquid preparation. In order to solubilize uh, sulfonylamide, they uh, did that with uh, something called diethylene glycol. And so it, was, it tasted good. Um, it was easily uh, ingested by children. But as was soon found out, after they distributed uh, hundreds of gallons, actually, across the United States, about 240 gallons of that product was distributed throughout the United States, and people started to take it and died. There were about a little over 100 deaths, 34 in children, because we know that now that diethylene glycol can be toxic to kidneys. And that's what happened. These children and the adults died from kidney failure. And at the time, the FDA really was powerless. I mean, this was 1937. They they really had to ask the company. To withdraw that product from the market. The company didn't have to do that. Um, and, and and so they that's it. The whole fly swatter thing was based on that. But it would, gave birth to something called the Food, Drug and Cosmetics Act, which really gave the FDA much more power than they had before. Um, but again, it was a lesson built on tragedy.
1: So you also mentioned in the first uh, part with, with risk uh, examples such as organ transplants. So there the risk benefit calculations are a little bit more different than than some of the other cases you discussed. So it's somebody who is really at a variable, very uh, bad health and about to die, basically, if they do not get a particular um, organ transplantation, for example. So Again, thinking uh, with, uh, with, um, about the pandemic uh, itself, so people are also making these type of risk calculations. You can also die from COVID, but you have a vaccination there. Also, you have some risks that you can develop, for example, myocarditis. You have mentioned that earlier. Um, can you talk about a little bit taking these calculated risks and how to be better informed about these risks?
0: No, it's interesting. So the four, first heart transplant, the first human to human heart transplant was uh, done in South Africa. It was done by a um, surgeon named Christian Bernard. And the person who received that transplant was a guy named Louis Washkansky, who was on death's door. I mean, he was he wasn't going to live very long. So he was willing to take the risk because he didn't really see it as a big risk. I mean, if it, you know, the a choice not to take a risk is not a risk free choice. It's just a choice to take different risks. And in his case, a choice not to get a heart was, was a choice to die. So, so there the choice becomes a lot easier. It's interesting that, that in the, in this book, and I, I mentioned this in the book, although it hadn't happened yet, but it just happened within the past week was, um, I talk about, um, you know, there were about roughly at the time I was writing the book, there were about 4,000 people waiting for a heart transplant. Um, 1300 will die while waiting. And so I predicted as it turns out correctly, that eventually we would have a, a genetically modified pig heart transplant. That just happened within the last couple of weeks We're at the University of Maryland in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, the the someone just got a genetically modified pig heart. There's no reason one couldn't have done that. We do use pig valves as valve replacement in hearts, so that did happen. The other thing is interesting, by the way, and that just happened within the last day, um, so today is January 26th, so just in, in the last day, is there was a, a man who was about to get a heart transplant at a Boston hospital who wasn't vaccinated. And um, so he was going to get that heart, but because he wasn't vaccinated, the the uh, surgeons refused to, to give him the heart transplant, which, you know, created this great furor. I mean, the, the, the man said he just didn't believe in vaccines, not that vaccines are a belief system, they're actually an evidence-based system, um, but he didn't believe in them, and so he didn't want to get them. And, you know, because their hearts are precious. I mean, you know that they're precious when people are willing to get pig hearts um, because instead of waiting. Um, he, he, uh, he's, he, he is, he's at increased risk now of having severe COVID because he has obviously a dysfunctional heart. When he gets a heart transplant, he's going to be immune compromised. He's going to get drugs to suppress his ability to reject his heart. So he's going to be even at greater risk of SARS-CoV-2. So why should he get a heart? When there are other people who are far more willing to take care of their bodies, far more willing to to protect themselves in that new heart, given that hearts are that precious. And everybody thought this was a horrible thing to do, that we were denying somebody who had reasonably chosen not to get a vaccine. But I think it's not a reasonable choice not to get a vaccine. It's a choice you make for yourself. You also make it for others. It's a contagious disease. So I actually applauded that decision. But the Boston surgeons who have denied him that Getting a lot of flack, but you know, it's not unique. You, you, if you're not willing to comply with the medicines that you're given, for example, after a heart transplant, you, you're not going to get that heart transplant. In this case, it was something before that, which was the inability or unwillingness to get a vaccine.
1: Um, then I actually wanted to um, also ask you about the story with regards to the chemotherapy drugs that you that you mentioned in the book can you tell us a bit about how um, actually in this case mesotrexate came about
0: Sure. So there's um, probably one of the world's most famous cancer researchers from decades ago was a guy named Sidney Farber. There's a a building in uh, or a a complex in Boston called the Dana Farber Cancer Institute. And and that's where the Farber comes from. It comes from this man, Sidney Farber, who was a pathologist, one of the country's leading pathologists. And there was a series of papers that were published uh, that ended up being wrong, where they, they had thought they were giving mice that had cancer, this folic acid agonist. So a folic acid is a nutrient. A folic acid agonist is something that acts like folic acid. And so they kept publishing studies showing in, in, in good journals, like the PNAS, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, that here this folic acid agonist could, in fact, treat um, these mice and, and, and make their cancers go away. And so Sidney Farber then said, okay, I'm going to use folic acid as a a treatment for leukemia. So he knew people at a pharmaceutical company that could then provide him with a purified form of folic acid, which interestingly wasn't what those researchers were using, even though they didn't know it. What the researchers were actually giving was a folic acid antagonist, meaning something that worked against folic acid, which makes sense since folic acid was a nutrient. Why would you want to give a nutrient to cancer cells? Because it's only going to help them grow more. And so that's what happened with Sidney Farber. He took 11 children who had leukemia and he gave them essentially purified folic acid. Now, leukemia in the 1950s, when he was doing these studies, was a death sentence. I mean, most children didn't live a year, but he, he took a he took these children who had a terrible outcome and actually made them worse. So they didn't live a year. They left just a couple of months. Their, their, their bone marrows were packed with cancer cells. Cancer cells spread out of their bone marrow onto their skin because of this folic acid agonist. And so he realized that he had done exactly the wrong thing exactly the wrong thing. And so he thought, okay, I'm not going to give folic acid. I'm going to give a folic acid antagonist. And at the time that was called aminopterin. Um, Today we call it methotrexate. And what's interesting to me in this story is then he started to give methotrexate and found that it was remarkably effective. But the first person to receive methotrexate was a um, baseball player who used to play for the New York Yankees. He wore the number three on his back. And his name was Babe Ruth, was actually the first person to receive methotrexate. So that's interesting for me as a baseball fan. I'm not sure people in Switzerland necessarily <laughs> know that story, but um,
1: I was just very curious with the farmer story. He just basically took uh, these very uh, pure chemicals, basically, and then just injected um, them into into children without any kind of. A study or justification or analysis of this of these um, uh, drugs. So this was then there was no oversight, so to say, on this at the time. I think
0: that's right. Uh, I mean, it, it was sort of the wild west of, of uh, therapies, which in many ways led to some very quickly developed products like this one, methotrexate, and then methotrexate. But you're right. Um, things are much slower these days, uh, which is good in the sense that I think there's uh, people go more carefully and slowly, but bad in the case, in the sense that as you wait year after year, there are people who are going to die while waiting.
1: You start the book with a quote saying, "The past is never dead; it's not even past." So. I was just wondering: Is it in a, uh, that we are doomed that to repeat the same mistakes, <laughs> or does it mean that this is the way, this is the process, and we just, you know, have to be patient and find out?
0: Right. Uh, it's it's not. Uh, we're not doomed. I, I think we do learn as we go. I think my point is only that when I say the past has never passed, it's not me actually. It's William Faulkner. But um, it's because uh, that pattern of of learning as you go. Never ends. I think people would say now, well, you know what? Let me just wait till the learning curve is over. Then I'll get this therapy. But the learning curve really, in many ways, never is over.
1: So um, thanks a lot. And I actually want to just touch upon one last thing. I really appreciated and enjoyed this um, uh, the way you wrote the book, that you made the science so accessible uh, and understandable. So I think people also, even without um, a scientific background, will be able to appreciate these stories and hopefully find out that also there are some costs uh, to some of the you know best innovations that we have at the moment that now saves lives Um, do you think that this level of so thanks a lot for that this level of scientific communication is something that lacks between scientists and the and the society so i think i find this very important and i just wanted to ask you what you what you think about it is how important it is to communicate these in an understandable manner
0: well, I think it's critical. It's uh, now more than ever. Uh, and you look at the number of people who are simply rejecting vaccines and thus allowing this virus, SARS-CoV-2, to continue to spread and mutate and create variants which are more and more resistant to vaccination. Now more than ever, I think as scientists, it's incumbent upon us to try and be able to translate what we do to something that not only the public understands, but the public is compelled by. Uh, you know, I, 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 now more than ever, it's important to do that. And I don't think necessarily as scientists, we think that that's our job, but it is our job, because um, if people uh, if people don't understand science or don't care about science, or, or which is odd since the, the we live in a world we live much longer because of advances in science and technology. Yet we have a population that is is not necessarily uh, well informed about science or technology. I think it's our job to do that because we're funded to do it. I mean, we create things like vaccines and and, and antibiotics, etc., because of our work. And and that work is not unless that work is funded. And generally, it's funded by the public. Uh, then we're not to be able to continue to do it
1: so thanks a lot for that uh and thank you for your time it was a real pleasure talking to you and and reading the book and i would recommend to all of our uh, all of our listeners to take the time to read the book it's it's really enjoyable
0: thank you very much and good luck and stay safe yeah
1: stay safe everyone